Hey guys, it's Mara. And Sincere. Welcome back to another episode of Paula Talks. For today's episode, we're sharing the audio from the Pizza and Politics event this past Monday. Linfield's political science department invited China expert Amy Salico and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network, Chip Ponzi, to discuss the future of United States foreign policy. Without further ado, here's Pizza and Politics, U.S. foreign policy and the future of the world's order. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's Pizza and Politics on U.S. foreign policy in the 2020 presidential election. My name is Pat Cottrell. I will be your host uh, this evening and moderator. I am the chair of the political science department here at Linfield University. I also coordinate the international relations major, the leadership and ethics across disciplines minor, and I have the honor of being a uh, Lacroote scholar for the advancement of the liberal arts here. So uh, I'm delighted you could all be with us. And I would like to begin with a couple of thank yous. The first set of thank yous is for our team political science. Uh, we have several students who put in long hours uh, behind the scenes making events like this possible. Uh, if you, uh, I don't know if you can see in the screen, but we have three rooms on campus that are teched up uh, to engage students on these vital uh, issues. And we have a very active social media uh, site on Instagram. You can follow us at Linfield, Paul's, P-O-L-S dash I-R. Uh, that would be uh, your gateway to fun uh, on, on social media. And uh, also the students at their own initiative just started a Polytox podcast, which is available on Spotify and anywhere podcasts can be found. And uh, Chip and Amy, our guests tonight, who I'll introduce in a second, have uh, agreed to have uh, part of this uh, be turned into a podcast. So if, if you have people that might be interested in some of the content here tonight, uh, they'll be available uh, for, them to, uh, for them to listen to. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the number of donors to Linfield and political science department uh, that make events like this in support of our students possible. We appreciate you uh, more than words can say. Tonight's topic is uh, election 2020. Uh, in the election 2020 series is US foreign policy and the future of world order. And uh, by way of introduction, before I get to our uh, distinguished panel of guests, uh, let me just offer a couple of framing points. I think this topic is especially notable for a couple of reasons. First is that the uh, foreign policy tends to get overlooked in a lot of the media coverage in the run-up to uh, elections. And this is unfortunate because many of the issues at stake in foreign policy that we're going to talk about tonight will have a huge impact on your lives and the livelihoods of many. Um, these are questions about war and peace. This is the these are questions about the rise of China, uh, tensions with China, Russian election interference, climate change, terrorism, nuclear weapons, human rights, immigration, the spread of disease, trade finance, and the health of the global economy. I, I could go on, but all of these issues have uh, profound importance for, for our lives. Uh, the second reason this is unfortunate is because according to, to many political scientists, the president has significantly more power in the realm of foreign policy 
than the office does in domestic affairs, especially when you have divided government, which is to say uh, uh, the opposite party controls one or, or two, either the Senate or Congress and the, and the presidency. But that, um, but given that the, the office of the presidency holds the title of commander in chief, the chief diplomat is the face of the United States of America uh, and has a range of informal powers that can be used with only limited congressional oversight, your decision at the ballot box voters uh, you know, with respect to foreign policy is gonna matter a lot. Uh, there are fewer checks on presidential power and the so-called imperial presidency uh, as resulted. The second big reason um, this, this topic is notable is because most experts in US foreign policy, both from the left and the right, believe the 2020 election is among the most important in, in US history, if not the most important. I wanna quote Charlie Kupchin, who is a fairly centrist uh, scholar of, of international affairs who's also served multiple times in the U.S. government. And he says, quote, there's no question in my mind that it's the most important election in American history. The stakes are just enormous. We are entering an unforgiving period in history. The balance of power is changing at a moment when the West has lost its material preponderance to Asia and China. And at the same time, it's begun to tumble, stumble politically. That's a double whammy of historic proportions. Fortunately, for all of us here, we have two experts on US foreign policy who also happen to be two of my absolute favorite people on the planet uh, who are going to help us make sense of these complex issues and crystallize the stakes in this election. So let me introduce each of them. Uh, first, we have uh, Amy Selico. Amy is a principal of Albright Stonebridge Group and leads the firm's China team. Prior to joining the firm, Amy served as Senior Director for China Affairs at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative and has held other government positions in the Department of Commerce and at the State Department. Uh, Amy, we are just delighted to have you here and to see your smiling face and amazing background. Uh, second, we have Chip. Oh, Chip Ponzi. Chip Ponzi is the president and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network and is a senior advisor for the Foundation for Defense of Democracy Center on Economic and Financial Power. Chip also served as the inaugural director of the Office of Strategic Policy for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, where he helped create policies and initiatives to combat the full spectrum of illicit finance, including money laundering, terrorist financing, weapons of mass destruction, proliferation financing, and kleptocracy flows. Um, Chip has uh, signed a contract that he's going to limit the use of acronyms in this presentation for the ease of everybody's consumption. Uh, and if he does use an acronym, he will spell it out and explain it. Uh, so tonight's event is gonna proceed as follows before I hand it over to Amy and Chip. Each of them will provide about five minutes of framing remarks to provide the audience a sense of where they're coming from and how they see this election in broad terms. Then we'll move to a kind of a semi-structured conversation format uh, guided by pods of questions that I've received from audience members before the uh, be before uh, this event started. And then at about six o'clock, we'll turn to questions from the live audience. And if you are in the live audience, um, I would ask you to send me a conk man. Oh my gosh, where'd you come from? Uh, uh, I would ask you to send me questions at my personal, e on my email at Linfield, which is Pat, P-A-T, at linfield, L-I-N-F-I-E-L-D dot E-D-U. 
and I will be able to get those questions and get them in front of Amy and Chet. So without further ado, um, I will turn it over to Amy for the first round of opening comments, framing comments, followed by Chip, and then I'll ask the first question. Thanks everybody for being here. Thanks so much, Pat. It's great to be here with uh, so many old friends, but also with the Linfield University um, uh, community. It is daunting to start off just talking about how important foreign policy is um, to this election. And so I'm going to do what I always do, as you introduced. I'm a one-trick pony. It's all China all the time. Uh, I currently work on trade issues with China. And so for those of you in the audience uh, whom I haven't met in the past, my role at Albright Stonebridge Group is to help foreign companies, mainly American, and foreign universities and nonprofit organizations deal with challenges that they encounter working in the China market. Uh, despite China being the second largest market in the world, China becoming a much more integrated economy with the United States, with the rest of the world, over the past eight years, eight, more than four, um, as a close China watcher myself, I've been seeing, and many of us have been seeing, to our frustration, China continue to uh, grow richer, to continue to develop, and at the same time, continue to tighten its market and restrict access for foreigners to the China market at the same time that China continues to subsidize its products and unfairly sell them in global markets, um, making their products artificially cheap and making it harder for foreign countries and foreign companies to compete with China on the world stage. So three years ago, President Trump came into office and he said, you know what, I am done working constructively with China. Those guys are stealing our lunch, they're breaking the rules, they're treating Americans unfairly. And a lot of my clients felt exactly the same way. And so when the president said, I'm gonna try something different, they supported him. They supported the use of tariffs in order to try to bring China back to following the rules. And um, I'd like to just look three years on, how, how do you do? How are we doing? So three years on for, with a trade war with China, Americans have paid about $50 billion in tariffs. Uh, the United States has not recovered manufacturing jobs. The US global trade deficit and our deficit with China have grown. And the United States and China are closer to military conflict than we've been in many, many decades. So um, yes, the trade war has hurt China, but the fact of the matter is it's hurt the United States more. And the president over the last three years hasn't just waged a trade war with China, he's waged with the European Union, with South Korea, with Japan, Canada, Mexico, Germany, some of our closest uh, allies. And the president has stated that every country should have its own America first, make its own country great again, slogan and strategy. And that sounds like it makes sense, but what country doesn't hold its own interests before all others? Of course, all of us do. But this brand of foreign policy that President Trump has been peddling, like the trade war with China, has hurt us more than it's helped the United States. 
And it hasn't achieved the goals that the president laid out to force other countries to do what we want, to make us stronger, to make us richer and more secure. Instead, to me, it's just shown how dangerous it is to think that any country, even our country, the most powerful one in the world, can make the rest of the world bend to our will just uh, because we're going to refuse to participate in global bodies. We're going to refuse to join together to prioritize and, and execute policies that will strengthen rather than upend our existing global rules-based system. To effectively compete with China, to constrain its aggressive activities that are bad for the United States and bad for the world, to deal with global health pandemics, to reduce nuclear proliferation and the threat of open conflict with our adversaries. We need the opposite of an America first policy. We need to remember how critically important our leadership with others is to solving global problems. We tried America first. It didn't achieve the foreign policy objectives laid out by President Trump. We need a change. I think foreign policy is so critically important in this election cycle because the president and Vice President Biden have diametrically opposed views on how the United States should operate on the global stage in the 21st century. I can cite China as only one example. The president didn't achieve the goals he set, not because the goals were bad to bring China to account, but because of the unilateral tactics and the lack of strategy that he employed. I think Vice President Biden doesn't have a sure silver bullet solution to dealing with a more assertive and aggressive China and so many other global problems, but he does have a strategy and it is to work with other countries to have effective leverage to stop rule distorting behavior and to stop undermining the global rules-based system itself. And so I think that is why foreign policy is so incredibly important to this election. I'll stop there, Pat. That was fantastic, Amy. Thank you so much. Chip. Thanks, Pat. And wow, what a what a great opportunity, except uh, following Amy is always uh, unfair. Um, so let me begin by just by, by thanking everybody for having me and and um, and thanking you, Pat, for inviting me up on, on the panel. It feels a bit like a reunion. I'm, I'm looking at the names and, and uh, so um, happy to recognize a number of them. Uh, for those of you who are at Linfield, I actually have family who have dialed in for this, including my mom, hey, Marnie, uh, my, my brother, Morgan, uh, a number of classmates and alumni, including Amy and Pat, and, uh, and a number of, of other friends that I can see, the Ballards and, and Conkman and others. So um, that's a testament not only to, I think, the, the topic of the panel, but frankly, to, to what Pat Cottrell represents to, to so many. And I wanna start there because I think when we talk about what, what it is that you're doing at Linfield, what it is that we're doing in, in whether it's business or whether it's public service, you know, what is this all about? What is America? What is America first? Um, and what is leadership? At the end of the day, this is about making a positive impact, uh, enabling the best of one another and having fun along the way, enjoying the ride. And nobody does that better than Pat Cottrell. Nobody taught me that better than, than my mom, Marnie Ponzi. So 
uh, it's great to start with with a reminder of, of that and, uh, and, and a gratitude to Pat and to Linfield for having us. Uh, my perspective on this really comes through a financial lens. Um, after 9-11, I was very privileged to join the government and help put together a strategy to combat Al-Qaeda and terrorism. What we learned very quickly is that financial information and financial action were essential elements of American foreign policy and essential elements of our collective security. Why? Because when you try to figure out who Al-Qaeda is or what terrorism looks like, the financial signatures of terrorist organizations and the relationships that they draw between those that set off the bombs and those that enable it, that is the best evidence you're gonna have about preventing the next attack. That became immediately apparent to our country and to our allies after 9-11. And it led to a series of other realizations that in many ways inform my perspective on foreign policy today. Um, I'll just tick through four. So the first is that if financial information and financial disruption are essential to identifying and combating terrorism in a preventive capacity, not just a reactive one. They're also essential for identifying and preventing other forms of threats or abuses that we may be facing. And we learned that over the past 20 years with the expansion of what I would consider to be a post 9-11 national instrument of power, our financial and economic might. And we've used the financial information and economic leverage that we have as a country to attack all forms of, of threats that, that we encounter, whether it's rogue regimes coming from North Korea or Iran, whether it's rogue participation in the international order through the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or through terrorism or drug trafficking or organized crime, or whether it's through corrupt elites that loot the assets of their people and enjoy, try to enjoy those in, in financial centers around the world. We've learned that financial information and financial disruption can combat all forms of threats that we are facing. That's the first step. The second step is to realize that for us to act upon that premise, that financial information and financial disruption are assets to our collective security, it's realizing that that's only true if we actually understand what money is in the system, where it's coming from and where it's going. That's a reliance on financial transparency that is a dangerous assumption. What we've learned over the past 20 years is that there are big dark corners of our financial system and big dark corners of our global economy. And what the relationships are between those who hold accounts in our banks and those who are financing those accounts or activities um, is that there's a lot of there is a lot of intermediated risk, which is code for a lot of parties in between the people that we're dealing with and the interests that they represent. The US Treasury Department put out right after I left a risk assessment that identified that there were over 60 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars of assets under management held by US investment advisors. These are financial service providers that are licensed by the SEC to provide financial advice to a whole host of clients. $60 trillion, as you may know, is more than half of our global GDP. It's more than 3X our national GDP. And that those financial advisors, not because they're bad guys, but because of a whole host of reasons, do not have an obligation to understand whose money they're holding. Such that if I'm sitting there in front of um, uh, somebody who's asking questions about whose money sits in our capital markets, 
whose money is being used to buy out critical infrastructure, telecommunications, national security interests, supply chains that we rely upon, we don't always know. And that's a pretty scary, that's a pretty scary realization. So financial transparency is key for us to understand and combat the risks that we face, the threats that we're facing. The third, and maybe the most important premise of our post 9-11 financial and economic power infrastructure is realizing that we live in a global economy, we live in a global financial system, we live in a global community. Nobody thought on September 10th that people living in caves in Tor Bor on the other side of the world could take down the two tallest buildings in America. And on September 12th, everybody figured that out. Um, threats are global. Finance is global. Economic supply, supply chains are global. And our businesses are global. So the notion of going it alone and saying America first or Kerblockistan first ignores the reality that we live in a world in which we are interdependent. There are good things about that and there are dangerous things about that. But the first step is understanding what those relationships are, what transparency can bring to understanding our reliance and our interdependence on other actors, some friendly, some not so much, and then having a strategy for allowing us to have leverage over those that would do us harm while protecting us from being vulnerable to those same actors. We're not quite there yet, but going it alone isn't an option unless you wanna wind back the clock and be North Korea. There is no going it alone in the 21st century. So before ending on the framework, I, I wanna now visit some of the assumptions that are made about foreign policy. And the, the assumption that, that I think is most dangerous is the notion that America first is somehow a zero sum game. That it's America's interest versus some other, some other interest, which challenges the very notion of what is America. And for many people, it's an idea. It's a way of governance that inspires confidence from not only ourselves, but from, from everyone. And I'll end on this story, which is at the height of the financial crisis, when for the first time in history, the US dollar was actually downgraded, was discounted by one of the three rating agencies, the reaction of global financial markets, which would ordinarily in a rational world, when the dollar is discounted, people would sell US securities because they would say it's worth less now than it was yesterday. The reaction from the global market was entirely the opposite. So the next morning, Secretary Geithner is sitting there in front of the press and saying, what do I think of the downgrade? I think that US securities are doing quite well because when the world panics, they rush to the United States. They rush here with their feet, they rush here with their money, they rush here with their kids and with their education. Because at the end of the day, America first is about everybody. It's about an idea that we can be better than we are today, tomorrow, that our kids are gonna have a better life than what we have, and that we're gonna continue to be progressive in lighting the way across technology and economy and governance, because we have confidence in a rule of law and a rule of order that allows people to compete, allows markets to succeed and allows us to get better. Um, that to me is not America first, it's America and everyone first, and it's not a zero sum game. And I think we've allowed in many ways the dialogue to be cast as a zero sum game and it's not. So I'm looking forward to the questions and the debate, um, but thank you again for having me and, and uh, Pat, back to you. Great, Chip, fantastic. I only counted one acronym total, so that's, that. You know, people in uh, in Vegas are are thrilled. They're you're, you just lost a lot of people, a lot of money. Um, so uh, I'm going to begin with uh, with as as I stated before, we collected questions from the audience, 
And I've grouped them into pods because and, and tried to cultivate some themes. And then uh, audience members will have the opportunity to ask additional questions at around six o'clock. Um, let's start, you guys already both touched on kind of America first uh, and, and your takes on American first foreign policy. So I'm gonna skip to the next question I had in line and maybe come back to this one toward the end about the broader US role in the world. Uh, let's start with China. Uh, as Amy's framing remarks indicated, China will likely be the biggest foreign policy priority after the election. Uh, human rights uh, in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, uh, South China Sea, trade wars, uh, the environment and climate change, Chinese expansionism, not only regionally, but globally, Chinese military development, Taiwan, I could go on. My question for both of you guys, and maybe Amy, you could take this first and then uh, we'll give, uh, both of you have the opportunity to respond or whoever wants to go first. Uh, what's your policy advice to the next US president with respect to China? What are the best case and worst case scenarios? And are the US and China on an inevitable course for increased conflict and even war? I'll, uh, the one trick pony gal will start first with China, 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 um, and then turn to Chip. Um, I, I, I haven't been this discouraged thinking about US-China relations ever in my you know, career working on China. And I first started you know, studying about China in the mid 1980s. So it's been a long career focusing just on one thing. And um, even as Chip was just talking about the global financial crisis, the, the story that came to my mind was knowing that um, as you know, the US system was really on the verge of a significant meltdown, the Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary Paulson at the time, could call the Chinese uh, vice premier and say, we need you here to, to be there for the United States. And so, as Chip said, you know, there was no route on the US dollar. The Chinese didn't try to take advantage of the global financial crisis that started in, in, in the United States at that time because we had a very strong bilateral relationship, a strong bilateral relationship that was characterized with a lot of disagreements, a lot of complaints, and a lot of competition, but there was also this ability to talk through issues that mattered to the world as well as to our countries. And today, frankly, we just don't have that, Pat. We don't have that foundation right now. The relationship, uh, when I look back on history and try to think when was the relationship this bad, I have to go to 1972. I have to go to before President Nixon first visited China and started the process of normalizing US-China relations, which took another seven years. Because before President Nixon made that trip to China, I think the United States and China looked at one another through a lens primarily of suspicion, mistrust, rivalry, and the potential for repeated conflict. Um, today is the 70th anniversary of Chinese troops uh, going into North Korea to fight Americans. And the Chinese government is talking about it openly as something that may happen again. And we haven't thought of one another primarily as a military opponent since before President Nixon went, went to China. And that is what either President Trump 
or Vice President Biden is going to have to deal with in January of 2021, when one either takes a second term or the other takes a first term. This relationship is really bad and isn't going to get better anytime soon. And so what is required is, you know, thinking about what are the tools that the United States has with others to try to deal with a more aggressive and assertive China. I don't really lay the blame for the deterioration of the relationship on President Trump or President Obama before him or any U.S. president. I think China is changing the rules and it's very difficult to deal with this more assertive China that's undermining a lot of the global rules-based system. I just, like I, I said in my opening remarks, Pat, I think that um, President Trump did try a way forward to deal with this very, very different uh, Chinese government uh, that we have to contend with as China becomes a global power, fully global power. But I think this notion, and you hear it a lot of decoupling, you know, disentangling the first and second largest economies in the world from one another, is um, it may sound like it's the way to make us more secure, but unfortunately it's completely unrealistic. And so I do think in 2021, regardless of who wins the election, we have to come back to thinking about what are other ways to build more leverage in dealing with the Chinese government, to try to get them to, to change their behavior, behavior that's undermining the global system. And you ran through a lot of those issues when you asked the question, Pat. Amy, thank you. Chip, you wanna chime in here at all? Three quick points, and again, uh, I love that you keep setting this up so I have to follow the world's, the world's smartest China scholar on questions relating to China. Um, Amy is, is, I would advise anybody who's, who's serious about having an in-depth conversation on China and the US-China relationship to, to uh, stalk Amy. Sorry, Amy. But uh, she really is the world's smartest expert on, on these issues. Um, the three points I would just, I, I, would, I would point to, first, that Ch China, like, all, like every country, sophisticated country, is three-dimensional. Um, it's it, it's it's fairly easy to fall back on on a on a, a perception of any one of us as a person or as a country as one dimensional. And there are elements of China that are very reformist minded and that are um, that are different than than national policy may may attest. Harder to find, but I don't know that we've I don't know that we're looking hard enough. Um, there are elements of of the Chinese leadership and certainly of Chinese politics that are divisive, just like ours are. They have they do play by different rules and. They speak with one voice for under a different system, but um, they're not a monolithic um, uh, uh, polity in the sense of how, how they see the world. And we've done a lot of work with the central bank on issues that have been very cooperative at the same time that we've had real struggles in other parts of the national security infrastructure. So we need to look harder at a three-dimensional China. One area to pursue is corruption, where um, turning attention towards leadership that has enriched themselves at the expense of, of, of a society that's supposed to be egalitarian is, a, is, a, is an interesting card to play. We've tried it with Russia, not as consistently as we should, uh, in part due to relationships that I think between this administration and Russia that are another conversation. But in any event, um, there are opportunities to put pressure on the Chinese leadership by thinking of them as a three-dimensional country, just like all of us. The second point quickly is hard defense. I mentioned the need for economic and financial transparency. We're getting better at this. We gotta get better faster. Um, who owns our critical infrastructure? Where are our reliances and supply chains that matter? 
um, for our economic and national security well-being and our financial health. Um, where are they coming from and how do we diversify against um, our risks associated with, with those dependencies becomes really important. And um, we've done that well with Russia, but we were never interconnected anywhere near to the extent that we are with China, as Amy's alluded to. It's gonna take more work and we have to be faster and better at it. And the third area, um, it gets back to the globalization point in my opening, which is that we have to find alternatives. It's hard to find alternatives when um, you're not cooperative with much of the world. It's hard to find friends that can replace supply chains or key economic or security relationships or arrangements. You can't play offense on all fronts and expect to have a lot of friends. We've got to sequence this. We have to be more strategic about how we build alliances. And doing this, remembering that there is a world order that we informed as the primary architect, and it's still ours. And when I say ours, I don't mean America's. We're back to that America first issue. I mean open societies. And the open societies around the world have much to gain from the world war that's gotten us here. And we can't let them forget that. That's not something that we're very good at, rem at reminding people about constructively, but it does open doors and create leverage, even against someone who may be as adversarial, at least at the moment, and as powerful as China. That was great. Thank you, Chip uh, and Amy. So what do you think about for U.S. foreign policy towards China? Well, I definitely um, agree with our two panelists in the sense of we need to do something about China. Um I know that Xi Jinping's vision for, you know, some call it a new world order, um, other call it the changing of the current world, like a, a little revising of the current world order. But I, I do think that um, he should not be underestimated in terms of how far he's willing to go to make a place for China in the international community. And that includes like reshaping norms and things like that, because China isn't like other countries, you know, um, just everything about it. It's not like other countries operating on the international stage. And so I think that more assertive action should be taken to curb China's kind of bid for more power and more influence. Um, because in a lot of in a lot of the ways that it's going about it, it could be detrimental to some of our allies and other vulnerable states in the um, like East Asia region. And I think that the United States needs to protect these people and protect ourselves as we are also in direct competition with China in so many industries. So I agree with what the panelists are saying. Yeah, as somebody who doesn't personally know a lot about foreign policy, I think that um, the panelists were right to suggest um, a more harsher um, response to Chinese, the relationship that we have with China. But I think that it's important that we also don't act in ways that we'll regret later. So it'll be interesting in the coming months to see what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I think that's kind of on everyone's mind is like our panelists were saying and, and other scholars and researchers is that we're in a very, like our relationship with China is so unstable right now. And we, people are saying we're closer to, you know, violent conflict, military conflict with China than ever before, or than, than ever, like than in a long time. And so I agree that we should make sure we don't do anything we'll regret and, and don't do anything that could possibly be super harmful to a large number of people. I'm gonna kind of go thematically on the pods of questions that I have that'll kind of touch upon, uh, you know, build on the last uh, response we had. So Chip, you mentioned uh, corruption as a problem in China. Uh, we had a few questions from our, from our, uh, our students and community on corruption in the United States. And let me give you a, a flavor of them. Um, 
And I can say, you know, all, all three of us, you, Amy, and I have all had security clearances, and we've all taken the oath to uphold the Constitution, and we've all worked for both Republican and Dem Democratic administrations. Um, and, you know, right now, um, we have a, a, a sitting U.S. president who has refused to release tax returns and is apparently a million dollars in debt, which, if, if memory serves, uh, would mean that we wouldn't be able to get uh, security clearances back in the day. Um, we've had an impeachment. We've had several people uh, who have been indicted on corruption charges pardoned. And we've seen the State Department Professional Diplomatic Corps decimated with the Secretary of State actively campaigning for president, independent inspector generals removed for criticizing administration's behavior on the basis of ethics. And so my question for you, uh, and maybe you can go first here, here, Chip, is is this not a total crisis of corruption and accountability? Is the U.S. not more open to form manipulation that undercuts our national interests than ever before in U.S. history? And how can we address corruption in China, as you mentioned, when our own house is in an order? Uh, what thoughts do you have and what can be done about this? And, and I mean this as a very nonpartisan statement, by the way. I, I know you do, Pat. I appreciate the question. And, and the reality is, if, if we were on a talk show, these are softballs that that, that uh, some parts of the media would knock out of the park and other, others would hammer. And, and we've all seen that for four years, which is pretty sickening. Um, so I'll start by stating the obvious and then maybe end with something that may be a bit more informative. You know, the obvious is we have to hold ourselves accountable to standards that we expect from others. And that's on a personal basis with ourselves and our families. It's on a national basis with our leadership and our citizenry, and it's certainly on a global basis with uh, the shining light that we want to represent for the rest of the world. That's, that, that, that's again, stating the obvious. We're not doing a good job of that. Starts at the White House. I'm, 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 I've been pretty vocal about it, regardless of people's politics. And I'm, as you said, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a politician and I don't have partisan politics, but um, the hypocrisy is pretty apparent um, and it's important um, for people to recognize. I also think accountability is, is crucial. And that's what this vote's about, among other things, is accountability for the person that we think represents who we are and what we stand for. Um, I'm hoping that most people remember that among other interests when they're in the ballot box. But I will say this, um, we, in focusing on the president and his administration, we have to, for the reasons that you're suggesting, but we also have a very strong record to point to. We, we have uh, hundreds of, of, of leaders that every year in America we put in jail for corruption. And it doesn't matter whether you're elected at the national level or state level or city level, and we hold you accountable. You mentioned the impeachment process. I thought that was really important. A conviction didn't happen, but an impeachment did. And for those that think that America is unified behind a president that represents much of what you've, you've described, um, they would not, not have to look very far to see that that's not true. He's, he's lost much of the country and perhaps um, more than a majority, and we'll find out soon. Um, so holding ourselves accountable is more than the president, um, which clearly we'll have a referendum on. Um, it's, it's about more than that. Um, the, the, the second thing I would say about corruption at large is that it, if we do not police corruption, then we will not have a market. Because when I talk about the race to the dollar when it's downgraded, when I talk about um, how the U.S. has built a global architecture that's led to more um, growth and progress for the benefit of everyone, it is on the basis of rules that are respected, enforced, and implemented where no one's above the law or above the code of conduct that we expect our markets and, and, our, and, our, and our businesses to comply with. When you have a president that put aside the personal issues as a businessman does not comply with those rules, that's a problem. Great, thank you, Chip. Amy, you have any, uh, any two cents to throw in? 
I know you're not just a one trick pony, by the way, that's just. Uh, <laughs> well, I literally cannot follow Chip on these issues um, that he has such deep experience and expertise on, but I'll just try to uh, broaden it out and just remind everybody that the rest of the world is watching this too. So when we talk about the cost of corruption to our system, part of that cost is our global reputation. And again, as, as the three of us have been saying this evening, it is just so incredibly important for the United States to be able to work with others in order to deal with many of the issues that we face, whether it's competition with China or whether it's climate change or whether it's dealing with a global health pandemic. So the cost of this corruption is significant and it's not unique to the United States to be uh, having this cost to our reputation when uh, other countries look at how we deal with corruption issues. And I will say, just of course, back to China for a second, you know, this has been an, an opportunity for the leadership of China, maybe to fill a vacuum where, where the United States has in some ways made itself absent from global leadership. Um, the reputation of the United States has, has taken a hit. And as we've been saying, President Trump hasn't been as interested in that. And so China should have been pushing on an open door to get more credibility, more respect on the global stage. And unfortunately for China, it really hasn't been able to win a lot of new friends and influence new countries beyond uh, its traditional playbook of using uh, economic leverage or political leverage to do so, in part because people look at the way the Chinese uh, government remains uh, very corrupt and more repressive, as we're seeing in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong, the behavior of Chinese government with its own people, as well as within the leadership of having fewer voices uh, making calls on policy. And so, you know, again, this doesn't, this isn't just an American problem. This is a problem for leaders around the world, how they deal with corruption within their countries. Fantastic. What are your thoughts on that, Cynthia? Um, about corruption? Yes. So, um, so I think that corruption takes away the opportunity for anyone except for those who are in charge of the corruption. I think that Chip discussing the importance of transparency was a really important addition, especially given our relationship with the Chinese government. Yeah, definitely. And I really liked Amy's point um, specifically about how, uh, you know, I mean, obviously corruption is not a good thing, but more importantly, the role it plays on the international stage. Um, when a country's domestic politics, when a country's government, there's a lot of corruption, things are not running smoothly, that impacts how um, other countries see you. It impacts how other countries want to work with you, whether they trust you, whether they think you're capable um, or responsible enough to lead. And so getting one's house in order, as, as Pat kind of put it, is you know just as important as being able to work with other countries, I think. Um, and also Amy mentioned that the corruption and the dysfunction of United States politics, it kind of, um, there's an opening for China to come in there so that's another thing is I think that corruption leaves countries and um, it leaves them vulnerable to foreign influence. Uh, Chip mentioned a, a, a global architecture. Amy, you just referenced some multilateral institutions as well. Uh, this leads me to the next question, which is over the past several years, the United States has withdrawn from another uh, from a number of multilateral agreements. The Paris Climate Accord, 
the Iranian nuclear deal, the World Health Organization, and even the uh, Transportation Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Free Trade Agreement, uh, which we the United States never actually joined, but certainly spearheaded the negotiations of it. Uh, and in each of these cases, actually, it's not just the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, see CHIP acronyms, uh, it's all of these different organizations. The United States has been uh, at the forefront of pushing these negotiations through and is no longer now a, a party. Uh, how much should we be concerned about this turn away from multilateralism? And would you advocate for the United States to rejoin or join in the first place in, in the case of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Um, all of them, some of them, and why, why or why not? Go ahead and jump in. Whoever would like to go first. I'll take Iran, and I'll leave. I'll leave the TTP to to, to Amy for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I think the short answer is it depends. Um, you know, the, the natural inclination is towards inclusion and towards uh, collaboration because I think regardless of your politics, and and I'm I'm sure the Trump administration, notwithstanding um, actions that it has taken, would would agree that in in, in the absence of any particular. Um, dispositive factor you want to cooperate more than you want to combat because there's 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 just more to there's more to gain there's more to build and 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 there's there's uh there's uh it's 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 a better future when you share the same planet the same economy the same financial system to work with those that are part of it um that said you know are 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 there material factors that would that would lend towards walking out or not supporting um, these sorts of organizations? And I, and I think it's case by case. You know, I look at something like the Iran deal. There was a lot of discussion around this. There's a reason why it wasn't sat, Senate ratified. It came down to partisan lines, but it really wasn't about a partisan set of issues. Um, at the end of the day, there was tremendous economic and financial leverage on Iran to get them to the negotiating table. In many ways, that was a success of what, um, what I explained in my day job about the use of economic and financial pressure and coercion in order to um, uh, create leverage and, and to achieve results that hopefully are consistent with, with, with the world order that we helped create. Um, and, and it was a difficult decision, I think, for those that, that take an objective lens to this to say, Iran is a pariah for a number of reasons. You can start with human rights or end there, move through terrorism, you can move through proliferation, you can move through regional instabilities and, and wars that they've fomented in the region uh, with devastating human consequences from Lebanon to, to, to Yemen to, um, to Syria and Iraq. Um, at the end of the day, there are a lot of reasons why Iran's a problem. Um, I think President Obama at the time rightly said that the priority is proliferation in terms of urgency, so let's take care of that first. Not a lot of disagreement. I'm sorry for the long summary, but it's important for people to remember the context. At the same time, um, that it's hard to say if, if we're gonna, if we are going to outcast you for this laundry list of abuses, and you agree to commit towards one of them, do we, do we relieve all of these pressure points? Which it really was kind of an on or off switch, and we more or less said yes. But we're gonna see how how Iran responds, and I think Iran's reaction to the to the deal, um, you know, they ended up taking the money that we gave gave them that we unfroze, they ended up taking the economic freedom that we partially reinstored the sanctions that we lifted from the UN, and they race towards further proliferation. They, they accelerated testing of ballistic missiles. They used the money to finance Hezbollah insurrections everywhere from Lebanon to Syria to, uh, to the Houthis in, in Yemen. Um, they did anything but take the open hand and shake it. They took the clenched fist and turned up the middle finger. Um, I, I think when that became apparent, it didn't question the wisdom of the deal. It questioned whether that was a deal that was worth staying in. And 
There, I think you have an interesting set of tactics by the administration because Iran was already basically on the verge of outcasting itself from the deal and the commitments that it made. And, and we made it easy for them by being the bad guy instead of letting them be the bad guy. But I, I say all that because I think it's too easy to say um, that this was a nice rosy deal. We had a lot of people who supported it and, and this administration basically walked out on it for a whole bunch of reasons that are different depending on who you read. It was always more complicated than that. And I think the administration's right to, to examine those sorts of arrangements and say, are we getting what, what we paid for here? And if we're not, how do we hold the other side accountable? I, I think the first question, the answer to the first one was we're not getting what we signed up for. The answer to the second one, do we handle it the right way is not, not the way that I would have advised. I would have let Iran be the bad guys, let them continue the path and then squeeze the pressure with a lot more multilateral, multilateral support. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with Chip that you can't just say multilateralism, it's good, it's bad. You really do have to look at what are the institutions, who are the parties. I mean, we were just talking about corruption and the World Health Organization that the U.S. just pulled out of. You know, the United States has a lot of questions about why China was able to really manipulate um, how the World Organization, World Health Organization was looking at COVID-19's emergence from China. And so that was a clear case. I don't think in a global health pandemic, it makes sense for the United States to absent itself from you know, working together with others, but I have a lot, a lot of sympathy towards how can we work with an organization that really isn't uh, isn't playing fairly in looking at this this critical global health pandemic issue, and so that's true with every multilateral organization or agreement. Uh, and so I'll take a couple of the other ones that you mentioned, Pat. A TPP. Now the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, was uh, the victim of I think um, just the, the challenges that we American citizens have with globalization and how many people have been left behind by globalization. And so the sounds of this large multi-country trade pact that it was just going to make it easier to offshore jobs and uh, to make corporations richer by operating outside the United States was only half of the story. It was also gonna make our products um, more competitive vis-a-vis -vis China and other countries that weren't part of that organization, but it was a really tough sell at the time. And so just to, to say to you, um, Pat, you know, of course the organization went on and the, the, the partnership has, has been made in our absence and the countries said, you're welcome back the United States if you can and want to come back. I think it's gonna be tough for a Biden administration if uh, the vice president is elected uh, next month to immediately rejoin TPP because there are many labor, environmental, and just manufacturing concerns about the benefits of that. However, I would say, and I'm sorry, I'm always coming back to China here, um, it is another way for us to compete with China by having a very large um, plurilateral trade group. So it's not everybody, it's just those who can who can make the standards of this free trade agreement to join. And so for security, as well as for economic reasons, it makes a lot of sense. And just one word about the World Trade Organization. I uh, and many others have seen and uh, worked with 
um, a system that's quite deficient. When everybody's a party to a trade organization, it's really tough to make any progress. But the idea that we should just leave the World Trade Organization because it is so imperfect and because this organization is struggling to deal with China, the second largest economy in the world, being different from other economies. It's not a quote unquote market economy. And so it has different rules and the, the World Trade Organization, the WTO has been very slow to be able to deal with that and stop China from kind of manipulating the system to its benefit. But the idea that the United States should withdraw and that we'll have more leverage outside of that organization, I don't think makes sense, Pat. And so despite the challenges with multilateral organizations and multilateral agreements, we have to continue to see how can we make progress in these fora because trying to go it alone isn't going to be easier or bring us, uh, I think, better success. Fantastic. Both of you, thanks for the, I, I want to say I 100% agree that, you know, you, you have to take each multilateral forum on a case-by-case -case basis. So our panelists um, discussed multilateral agreements and they both thought, you know, it really depends on which agreement. It's like a case-by-case -case basis. What do you think about that? I definitely agree. I don't think that you can always rush into something thinking that it's going to always Like a relationship. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I think it takes good leadership and the transparency Chip was talking about to really identify what are the pros and cons of entering into agreement and whether or not in the long run it's worth it Yeah, for both sides. Absolutely. And I definitely think there, there are a lot of like effective multilateral agreements out there that, that really help give a sense of security to um, countries. In, in, but at the same time, yes, I agree with everyone that it is a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. Not every deal is going to be the best thing to do, you know? You know, in terms of, I, I know we have a lot of people interested in, uh, in environmental issues. So um, if, if you guys wouldn't mind, and, and maybe Amy, you could start with this, given that, you know, China is, is, is such a big source of uh, global pollutions, pollutants. Um, what has been, you know, in, the, U, the impact of the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris, if you could discuss that context, and then vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, you know, China, I think, has pledged to be carbon neutral by 2060. Do we have a, uh, any hope that, that that will happen? And what role do the Paris Accords have, if any, in, in achieving that? Um, well, I think, um, you know, climate change is yet one of so many issues that without uh, American participation and leadership, I have to say, it's very hard for other countries to really make constructive progress. Uh, and so I think that's, um, that's what we're seeing. Without the United States as, as a member, other countries, I think, are just going a bit more slowly than they ought to be going because we're not there. And, you know, we can't blame them. We're not there. But I think it only underscores, Pat, how important it is for the United States to demonstrate leadership here. The European Union obviously wants to be a leader and many of those national governments are taking these commitments very seriously. And I think that was the audience to whom Xi Jinping was speaking when he just made that commitment uh, during his speech to the UN General Assembly. And the Europeans, frankly, needed to hear something re reassuring uh, from 
from the Chinese leader. The, the, the Europeans have been having their own sets of challenges with the Chinese government on a whole host of issues, many of the same issues where we face uh, challenges with China. And I think the, the, the Chinese government has been uh, slowly waking up to the fact that it's not just the United States who is, is, is concerned about more assertive, aggressive behavior by the Chinese on the global stage. So are the Europeans, so are the Japanese or the Australians. I could go on and on and we've seen many, many countries push back. And so I think um, President Xi very smartly made uh, China having a green revolution and, and doing more with climate commitments a big part of his speech to the UN, but uh, I think the European Union has heard China make commitments in the past. And so really what it's going to be about is in 2021, how do we see China moving to meet that very aggressive target? And again, I will say, I think without the United States as part of the solution, it will be easier for China to continue dragging its feet. Chipper, you have any uh, any any last comments on the on the multilateral question, or maybe maybe just one, um, which which uh, uh, really goes to the heart of the international order that that we that we've evolved towards. And you remember when we were students, it was still very much a state centric system, and in many ways it, it continues to be, but less so every year and every generation. Um, the complexity of the world we live in, owing to the globalization I was talking about at the outset, is empowering to individuals, to non-state actors, to businesses, to multinationals, to NGOs, to like-minded communities that, you know, on a Twitter feed can connect halfway around the world for better and for worse. And while, you know, some like like the Russians have very clearly figured out how to use that for misinformation. Um, and and I don't mean to always go back there, but I, I can't help it. Um, especially given recent events. Um, I'll leave that there. Uh, but but the point here being that th there's there's lots of opportunity when we look at um, global issues like the environment and pollution to think outside the nation state regime, which is still the most important part of the architecture. But you think about um, where the financial markets are and the investments that um, that some are making into new technologies with alternative fuels. It's very real. I mean, and the, the, and the key here with the pollutants is, is going to be with respect to, to cars. Um, and there's lots that go. There, there's lots of studies about all, all different elements of what kinds of pollutants we're talking about for what type, types of purposes. But at the end of the day, you know, the fossil fuel um, issue is 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 going to be um, solved more by trying to get to electric cars, in my view, than anything else, because once you've got that, other things tend to come online around it. Um, obviously, there's when there's solar, solar, there's other types of renewables, but um, it, it, it is a responsibility in many ways of our leadership that we elect to take the position that we want. And if, and, and if the we is divided, you get divided leadership, but you also have the markets. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's been interesting to watch how you've had non-state actors not only inform that debate and basically push the Paris Accords, um, and the whole evolution of thought around the environment, um, going back to dolphin, you know, safe tuna nets. Um, you're at a point now where the non-state actors through the business communities, alliances with NGO interests can start to really drive um, uh, adoption. And when you get to driving adoption and driving markets, you, you, you create markets that at the end of the day may make this a lot easier for states to follow rather than lead. And I think the environment is a place where we're gonna see that.
fabulous, you two. I am so happy that we, these are, I mean, our, our audience is very lucky to be getting this nuanced uh, analysis of, of foreign policy issues. Climate change is one of those things that I think about a lot and it makes me really anxious and it makes me really stressed out because it seems like this, um, this like beast of a problem that I don't know how we're going to solve. So, so what do you think the role of like U.S. foreign policy and in regards to climate change should be sincere? I personally think that it starts with accountability and mm. realizing where, maybe not whose fault it is, but what ha needs to happen next and who should be at the forefront of making these changes. Um, but I don't think that, like, the current argument within the United States is that we still have people who don't even believe climate change exists. Yeah. So it starts with, like, education and making sure that people understand what the actual consequences could be and will be if we don't actually take it seriously. Right. And do you think that um, the U.S. should should be a leader on climate change? We should be setting an example, in a sense. I think that we definitely should have a component in the global conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't know about us leading it. I think that us, the United States, as a um, world power, maybe has been at the forefront of a lot of conversations that have dictated what the world looks like, but mm -hmm. climate change means change. So mm -hmm. who knows what that will mean? Yeah. But I think that the United States should definitely be involved in mitigating and helping to figure out what needs to happen next. Absolutely. I would like to see, I mean, pulling out of Paris was just like such a big deal. Yeah. I would like to see the U.S. be more of a big, bigger voice in the conversation and stuff. I mean, China, they, that Pat mentioned, they committed to, being completely carbon neutral by 2060, which is crazy. Um, and, but, like, that's another example of, like, China, like, stepping up and yeah. being, like, we could be a world leader. We could lead on climate change. And the U.S., I feel like I would love to see, especially on something like climate change, which is just, it affects literally everyone. Mm -hmm. Not one country can be, like, climate change, we don't need to help with that because it doesn't affect us no. because it affects everyone. And so I would just love to see the U.S. step up and be like, you know, yes, we will work with everyone else on this. Like, yes, we have a stake in this. You know, you, you can, in a, in a sense, trust us. And whether that means, like, full-on leading yeah. or, or not leading, um, I, I could care less as long as they are a part of the conversation yeah. and we, we are making strides and we are contributing to helping, um, con contributing to helping solve this problem. Absolutely. Um, I, I really do want to give the audience a chance to start chiming in with questions. So everybody, now would be a good time to start emailing me. I already have a few. And let's treat this uh, kind of final question. I'm going to ask, do the old uh, trick of asking two questions and you guys can kind of uh, do with them what you will. Um, the first is really directed at students, but there are also many of us are uh, parents uh, as, as well that, that might be able to share this advice with our kids. Uh, what advice do you have for today's students, younger people who have an interest in getting involved in foreign policy or international affairs? whether it's in the public sector or the private sector, or, or in other words, what have successful young people, what are they doing today um, to impress you, to knock your socks off? What types of skills should they be developing? And um, any other tips or suggestions you'd have for them would be really appreciated. So that's the first question. Uh, and the second question is, uh, I think is good for kind of summation, closing remarks. How do you characterize the US standing in the world today? 
Is it better or is it worse than it was four years ago? And to the extent that there's something left to be desired, uh, there to be desired with, um, you know, the U.S. role in the world, can U.S. leadership be restored? And how much should we care if it isn't, uh, if it is or it isn't? Uh, so those are the kind of last two questions. Uh, I will I will lob at you from the kind of pods of questions we had. And then the next question I ask will be from our audience. So thank you both. And I look forward to hearing your responses. All right, how about, how about I'll go first on the youth tips and then um, Amy will go first on, on, the, um, on the US standing. So we'll ping pong it, is that fair? All right, so on the youth tips, uh, I go back to, to my opening comments around uh, what Marty Ponzi always taught us and certainly what um, many of you in the call have always embodied, which is a curiosity about the world around us and a recognition that um, we're, only, we're only gonna get better by making those around us better. And that's because we are inter interdependent. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about families or communities or countries or economies or, uh, or, or, or the, global, the global community that we now have. Um, our interdependence is our greatest vulnerability and in some ways our greatest strength because the world's an incredibly interesting, diverse place. And just when you think you kind of understand it, you get a curveball like 2016 and you realize you don't. Um, and so that kind of curiosity and, and, uh, and, and wonder at the diversity of the world and, and, and the humility to understand that um, you got to balance the confidence of your own studies with the knowledge that there's always going to be a curveball out there. I think is key, and and uh, maybe coupled with that, a realization that um, you got to expand your bubble, because um, if if we're not taking care of of, of everyone um, in some degree or capacity around us, and and whether that's again our our families or our country or our global community, um, those that are left out are going to come back to uh, to figure out a way to do damage, and um, you know this this uh, reaction to to globalization. It's not unique to the U.S. You know, we've we've seen this in, in open societies around the world over the past four to five years, in particular. Um, I remember sitting there in in uh, in Frankfurt in 2016 in November when the election results were were announced, and I was just getting ready to uh, to brief a board of a major global bank about a whole bunch of issues associated with financial crime in Russia. And the election results were announced at 9 a.m. Uh, uh, European time, which is right when Hillary conceded. And we obviously suspended for 30 minutes so they could figure out what, what was going on in the markets that they were, <laughs> they were, they were managing. But they were, they were very grim. They just said, look, uh, we've just saw Brexit. We're looking at Le Pen in France. In, in, in France. We're looking at um, different radical right parties here in Germany. And um, you know, we, we've really messed this up. Um, we being the haves, we really messed this up. Uh, we were not attentive enough to the inequities of a globalization that takes capitalism and pours gas on it in a way that is great for production, because it is. It's the best production engine of all time, no matter what your economists tell you. The greatest production of all time, greatest production engine is capitalism. It also happens to be the worst distribution model of all time, which is why we have all those isms that professors get paid to, to help you navigate. But how do, we, how do we tap the productivity of capitalism and tame the inequitable um, distribution that capitalism creates? We haven't been attentive enough to the latter, and uh, they recognize it then as as premier bank bankers that are kind of the face of the haves. Um, we haven't done enough to change that. So as you think about curiosity, diversity, humility, and confidence, think about everybody. That would be my best advice. I'll just say I think 
two questions are really linked, Pat, because I am an optimist. I do believe, of course, the United States can be a global leader again. Yes, our reputation has taken a hit. You just have to look at, you know, surveys. The Pew uh, just did a, a global survey. And, and yes, it's true. Um, the views of the United States have taken some hit. But they're not fatal hits. And of course, American leadership can be restored, but only if the students who we're speaking with tonight want to be part of this process of exporting what is great about the United States to the rest of the world, exactly to Chip's point, for the benefit of the world. We don't just export financial services or cars or computer chips. We export environmental standards. We export anti-corruption rules. We export you know, valuing the dignity of individuals and some freedoms in that when we export our leadership for the benefit, yes, of the United States, but of others too. And so I think as students think about, you know, what's my role in that? It seems so very, very big. You only have to pick one slice of it and say, how do I want to be a part of that? Part of, like Chip just said, this global community that we have. Um, and and in restoring uh, the value of American leadership in the world so that other countries do look at us and say, yeah, I wanna study there. I wanna be like that country. I want the world to benefit from all of us coming together on some things, not all things because we won't, um, but really trying to think about the United States as an exporter of ideals, of standards, of ways that don't just benefit us, but benefit all. And, and so I think your students can be very much a part of that if you think of one slice and one way that you wanna play in that uh, to help all of us. Uh, a couple of follow-ups for you guys there. Um, two or three skills that students should be developing on in their undergraduate education. What should they be leaving with? Uh, and then the second thing, put you on the spot, yes or no, better or worse off than four years ago? And uh, what is the one policy recommendation you'd have or the first thing if you had an audience with the president-elect uh, or the president, uh, what would it be? I'll take the second one first this time. Um, if, I, if I were advising any incoming president or uh, if, if Trump's an incumbent, it's to remember that um, we understand, uh, I hope as Americans, that we contribute more than any country to the global world order that we currently have, because we do. It's not, it's not equitable in the sense of our UN dues or our, um, our lead by example or other forms of contribution, however you want to measure them. The US is, is tapped to contribute more than anyone, anyone since the end of World War II. But I would say that that is not only by design, uh, a design that we held the pen on, but to our benefit. Those that write the rules and those that contribute the most also benefit the most. And I think that second part has been left out of the education of the American people who see the growing obligations um, on the part of the US with legitimate questions about the contributions of others but where we also have to ask ourselves who's benefiting from the world order that we live under now and what happens without it and who holds the pen then? And then where does that put us? So 
it's easy to knock the current reality until you, until you start to develop an alternative one. And I want us holding the pen as long as others would let us do that. I don't want us walking away from it. If others want us to walk away from it, that's one thing, but let's not edit ourselves. So that's the answer to the second question in my view. Yeah, and just to add on to what Chip just said, China is now the second largest contributor to the UN. And so uh, precisely to his point, if we don't maintain our engagement and our, our leadership, we will lose it. And that is not good for the United States. And so uh, I think that uh, that's an important component there. If I were speaking with uh, President Trump or Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, I would say two things. Uh, first off, you know, let's think about American competitiveness seriously and not in a political way, please. Um, you know, once the, once the political season is over, let's look again and how, how we can maintain our primacy in so many different areas of being an innovative place. Our universities, our private sector, our robust civil society, let's reinvest in all of that so that the United States can, can remain the innovation leader. And then secondly, of course, I would say, let's look at our key core alliances and let's rebuild them before we start talking about China to China. Let's talk about China to partners who share our values first. Now you want the hard question. Now you want the hard question. Wants to answer the hard one, like the magic way to succeed if you're coming out of school these days. Oh man, I wish I had the answer to that. Or just skills. Like, what are the skills that, that employers today, especially in your line of work, what do they put a premium on? Yeah, I mean, there. This is going to sound hokey, and and there there are you know versions of the answer, but at the end of the day, it's trust. Is this somebody whose uh, whose behavior, judgment? Uh, maturity, you're going to be able to trust. Um, and, and I say that because at the end of the day, you know, in this global community that we keep referring to, um, the most important asset is trust. There's no question. There are people who are 10 times smarter than I am who should be um, uh, doing half the things that I'm doing, um, but may not have had the opportunity to develop relationships where, where people can count on you. And obviously you have to deliver. Um, and so, the most prized commodity in a service economy, which is what we are, and a global service community, which is where what we're becoming, um, is 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 the trust to be able to rely on somebody's commitment, and that's that's uh, that's invaluable. It's invaluable not only in ourselves but in the people that we that we elect. Are these people that are trustworthy that you can rely on to follow through on the commitments that they've made? Um, the hard skills, Pat, are are look. I mean, the the, the sciences are, are huge. And at the end of the day, they're just a means to an end, which is truth. Truth is, if we're not committed to truth, um, then we're gonna lose it because truth is what helps us progress. And for those that um, are not interested in the relentless pursuit of truth, whether through journalism or science, um, they're gonna be on the losing side of history. Great, Chip. I love asking this question because people come up with really interesting uh, answers, and that's one of them. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to quote you. Amy, you have anything to add? Yeah, I fully agree with Chip again on just this idea of becoming indispensable to your organization. I mean, as Chip put it, if you're reliable, if, if, if you become known as somebody who a task can be given to and 
regardless of, of what time of day it was, you're going to find a way to get an answer and be reliable or come back and say, this can't be done in that period of time. You know, being a good communicator and a reliable member of the team is incredibly important. And then the other very hard skill I would, I would um, recommend everybody work on is how do you write about very complicated things in no longer than two pages? You know, and, and all of us suffer from needing to explain very technical things to lay people all the time. And you need to obviously be able to write succinctly, clearly, but in a way that's analytical and doesn't lose your audience. And so while you're in school, think about that two page, how do I sum it all up in, in a cogent way for the reader? That's a really hard thing to do, but incredibly valuable. And it's something that, again, you can demonstrate uh, to a prospective employer through writing samples. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, Amy. Oh, thank you. Um, no prompting either. No, right? True. None. Um, let, let's move to a couple questions from the audience. Okay, so um, I'm gonna, we have a, a, a several of them on China. So I'm just gonna give um, two of them that are related and uh, let you guys have at it first. And then we have a couple, couple follow-ups. So uh, first question, uh, what might a President Biden do to deal with the plight of the Uyghurs? Is there anything that can be done? Haven't our possible economic tools to pressure China been shown not to be effective? What about more credibly accusing China of gross human rights violations and even cultural genocide? Would the Chinese president care about losing face in terms of China's international prestige? Can the Uyghur situation be made more prominent among publics abroad that China cares about? And I'm just gonna go ahead and throw a Taiwan. I mean, it's same, same, but I mean, it's not same, but it's, it's different, but it relates to, um, you know, related. Um, Atlantic article by Peter Beinert in 2008 about U.S. foreign policy. He notes that the Taiwan is a relationship, uh, U.S.-Taiwanese doesn't benefit the United States. It's extremely costly for the United States to defend Taiwan and an act of defense lacks support from the American public. He mentions possible reunification of China and Taiwan, one country, two systems, uh, along the lines of Hong Kong. If China were to make a bid for Taiwan, how should or would the United States respond? If the U.S. did support China's bid for Taiwan, what would the outcome of the Taiwanese government, DPP, whose platform is so different than the Communist Party's? And again, Hong Kong here, I think, would be another thing to touch on, which uh, lots of uh, protest forcibly put down. Uh, clearly, China is accelerating the reunification process of, over a special administrative region. Uh, should we care as Americans? And what can be done? Well, luckily, those are very easy questions to answer in the next 60 seconds, so no problem. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think um, all of those un questions underscore why a Biden, let's assume it's a Biden administration we're talking about. The relationship with China is not going to get better because a Biden administration does have to contend, like the Trump administration would have to as well. But talking about if it were Biden, um, he is going to come into office in 2021, a year before Beijing hosts the Winter Olympics in 2022. So to the question about Xinjiang and about the plight of the Uyghurs, 
Um, if you haven't seen The Economist, this week's Economist, the cover story is Torment of the Uyghurs and the Global Crisis in Human Rights. So uh, the questioner is absolutely right. There is more attention being paid to um, the, the cultural genocide that's happening uh, within China's borders. And those are very strong terms and unfortunately uh, to what the Chinese government is doing in the name, by the way, of fighting, you know, of combating um, terrorist activities, separatist activities. And so the, the Chinese government has tried to hijack uh, talking about, you know, fighting terrorism by, um, by conducting some of these really terrible things against a population of one to two million people within China's borders. So what does the Biden administration do? I think you are going to see um, from the Biden administration because of Xinjiang and because of Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, again, is an, is an area where China made a commitment when they signed a treaty with the British government <clears throat> when it was taking back Hong, Hong Kong that it would leave Hong Kong alone for 50 years until 2047. And so obviously the national security law that China just put in place in, in July is, um, is just dramatically decreasing the autonomy that Hong Kong enjoys. And so China hasn't lived up to that commitment, <clears throat> excuse me, that it made to the UK and it made to the, the global community. And so there, there are gonna be consequences. Uh, a Biden administration, I think will continue to use economic sanctions will continue to pressure American companies not to have anything to do with <clears throat> Xinjiang province, um, as well as any products that come out of China that could be the products of forced labor by Uyghurs who are being, um, being detained. But I come back to the Olympics because this is how a boycott happens of the Olympics. And uh, the Chinese government does care, that cares deeply about its global reputation on this issue. And so there's, this is, I hate to be um, just um, so calculated, but it is an opportunity uh, for the United States and China to quietly talk about what China needs to do to, to end those practices and to change its policies in Hong Kong to avoid a boycott of the 2022 Olympics, which likely wouldn't happen if we're looking at the, uh, uh, the Soviet Olympics till about four months before the Olympics. So we're talking about a year, a little less than a year from now. It gives a Biden administration time if the Chinese government and the U.S. government are willing to talk about accommodating one another there. And that is a big if, because again, this relationship is going to continue to get more contentious over Taiwan, over trade, for technology issues. And so these human rights issues aren't just a problem in a vacuum. They're the entire relationship. We used to say in my line of work on commercial issues that you know commercial ties, which were so strong between the United States and China acted as the ballast, the stabilizer of a relationship that had a lot of instability because of human rights and political disagreements. Now, everything is, a, is an area of disagreement. And so, unfortunately, I'm not very pessimistic, very optimistic that we can make a lot of progress. Uh, it is going to require the Chinese government to want to. And to date, we haven't seen Xi Jinping being willing to back down 
um, to U.S. because of U.S. pressure or European pressure. And so, again, I would just underscore we can't do this alone. Uh, the Europeans, the Americans, others have to together try to quietly pressure China to change some of this behavior. And we do have one piece of leverage, and that is the Olympics in 2022. And hopefully we can use that in a positive way to see some progress on these really, really difficult issues. Thank you, Amy. Uh, Chip, did you want to add anything there? Or are you uh, content to fast forward to the next question? I just want to be, I'll be, I'll be brief, even not even chip brief, but I would just say um, that we have a playbook here of authorities that um, can be uh, multifaceted responding to whether it's human rights abuses or whether it's it's uh, uh, China adventurism with 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 Hong Kong, with Taiwan, and in Europe abroad, et cetera. Um, holding individual Chinese leaders accountable for behavior on the merits um, has an impact. So we have authorities to sanction individuals for human rights abuses and corruption. We've used it to some effect, not nearly as much as we can. Um, if we give action to those authorities and we map where those individuals have assets and we, we tell them, look, you can't do that and enjoy your, your high rise or your, or your, uh, or your vacation home in, in Central Park, New York, or, or in, in London and in Mayfair, um, you know, that starts to have consequences and, um, and it introduces individual accountability. Um, on a subnational level, we can hit with sectoral sanctions. These have been effective in allowing us to not have an on-off switch with the world's most integrated economy with ours, um, but to hit them in certain key sectors. And it doesn't matter what's national security sectors and you're looking at a Huawei and technology there or semiconductors or elsewhere. Um, we can hit specific actors, industries um, to start to create some economic pain. Those only work, and this is this was Amy's point that we're, we're hurting ourselves as much or more than we're hurting the Chinese. Um, if you've got viable alternatives with options in a multilateral community where we've got lots of options if we're creative about it, and you think about what we did with Russia with the G7 and G8, the G8 became the G7 again. Um, the WTO without China is probably not going to happen, but there is a global standards WTO that hasn't been formed yet. We, you can create a global standard system within the system, and, and, and that's called the TPP in many ways. I mean, there are ways that we can get innovative again about um, playing offense and saying at the end of the day, the proposition that we have to the rest of the world is you, if this is really going to become a combative relationship for the longer haul over their way or our way, then let's be the type of economy and market that people want to vote with their feet and their kids and their education and their money with. And we're winning that one. Notwithstanding what people think of the last four years, we are winning that. We got to get back to it. I, I just have a couple of, I mean, a couple of other related questions on, on China are coming in here, but they're, I think they'll, be good for both of you guys. Um, thinking about China more broadly, Chinese, Chinese expansionism, uh, Belt and Road Initiative on one hand, uh, and then also, you know, in, in uh, continents like Africa, where Chinese uh, presence has grown. Um, one of the questions, uh, is the United States giving enough focus to Africa and U.S. foreign policy? Shouldn't the United States be creating stronger policy to compete with China and Africa to combat Chinese expansionism? And what are the repercussions if the United States doesn't? Uh, if you guys have thoughts on, on that, uh, that would be great. Well, I'll just very briefly say, I think we are. I, I do think the State Department is trying, and I know the United Nations 
the U.S. Uh, mission to the U.N., we are thinking about ways to increase um, our visibility with other partners because we're in a global competition with China. And that's not a bad thing. You know, competition's good. It should, uh, it should give choices. It's not, it doesn't have to be adversarial, but it does require, as Chip continues to say, for us to play offense as well as defense in what we're doing. And so maybe we were um, a little slow to this in dealing with China really as a competitor in all of these third markets. But I think, I think uh, the U.S. government has uh, woken up to the need to do more. And at the same time, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's kind of a fascinating topic because it's, it's um, you know, it was China's entree into soft power, use of soft power. And again, their track record, you know, in some areas really good and other areas not so great. And with a global health pandemic, and of course, China's economy slowing, although it's likely to grow two or 3% this year, which is pretty darn impressive given where it was at the beginning of the year. I think there's going to be, unfortunately for Xi Jinping, the, the architect of the Belt and Road Initiative, less focus on Belt and Road, not less focus though to the questioner on this idea of Chinese influence outside of China very much in competition with the United States and other countries. And so we just have to respond to that by being, uh, by being there, being more engaged. And I do think within the State Department, as well as broader U.S. government, we are trying to do so. We need to do more. Amy, Pat used to sit between you and me on my screen, and he's, he's done the Halloween I'm a ghost act. So he may, he may be soft, which gives us an opportunity to run amok here. Um, <laughs> just to respond, um, I fully agree with, with, yeah, with your point. Really uh, Pat's trying to get back on the call. We're trying to work that out. But in the meantime, yes, continue talking. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And, and um, we, we, love, we love to be unpoliced and fully licensed. So, <laughs> Amy, just to respond, I, I think um, I, I entirely agree. We've certainly seen, seen increased interest in our business. Um, abroad in third markets where China has been prevalent. And I think a really interesting um, analysis of that that, that we've, we've increasingly recognized is comes back to my thematic of when, when you talk to people about, hey, you know, what's the future like and what's sustainability look like? You have to think bigger than local, clearly. And you have to think bigger than yourself because at the end of the day, you know, consequences will, cup, will catch up to you. And I, and I do think what the, what the third, what the third, um, country market that we are competing with China in is recognizing is that this feels a lot more like um, uh, a, a locust season than it feels like fertilization season. You know, the Chinese came, they brought all their workers with them, they and they sort of sucked out all of the resources and all the benefits. And we don't have the jobs, we don't have the transferred skills, we don't have the sustainable production. What happened here? Um, and I'm oversimplifying, but not by a lot. So I, I, I do think the Chinese model with respect to um, whether it's, it's going to be um, the Belt and Road or it's going to be the you know, suspenders and, and, and dungarees, whatever the next one's called, um, they have to rethink their model because they're not winning uh, aficionados. They are exploiting um, uh, desperation in many places. And we, we can take advantage of that with a model that says, look, we, we are here to build in a way that is sustainable, that is shared. And it's not just gonna be, we come in here, we suck it out of the ground and we're gone and your elite gets all the money. 
Um, to do that well doesn't mean we do it the way we've always done it, although the way, the way we've done it, I think, is historically better than what we've seen from China, but it's not nearly as good as it can be. And that's where it gets a lot more creative around public-private partnerships that start with um, rules of integrity that the local country citizenry can buy into and say, hey, we're going to benefit from having a technology transfer, a knowledge transfer, skill sets, jobs um, that will stay even if the Americans go. Um, it's a different proposition than what the Chinese have been evidencing in their third country com uh, competitive um, um, uh, initiatives. And I, and I think there's a real opening for us there. Thank you both. I'm sensitive to time at 627 and I know I, I promised uh, 630. Um, so I will uh, invite you to make one last point. I won't ask any more questions. I mean, I have several I could ask. Um, but what reason do you, what makes you most optimistic about the future? I mean, we're talking about a lot of problems and how can average US citizens or voters be part of the changes that we need in US foreign policy? And maybe if uh, closing thought there and then we'll uh, all give you a giant virtual uh, and some in person round of applause. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak first, Chip, leave you with the last word. I'll just say that I'm optimistic because uh, I'm just hearing so much more about this election than I feel like we felt uh, four years ago, where people were a little tired and they were very disgruntled about um, our lot in life. Four years later, we're actually in a really tough situation with COVID and with our economy. And yet people seem uh, really interested in this election because in some ways I think we believe it's, it's many of us believe it's just so incredibly consequential, just the point of this entire talk, like you said, Pat, and that makes me optimistic that we're not just, um, you know, retreating into our own shells because things are hard right now. Things are hard uh, for a school at work at home because of COVID, I think people are saying, okay, what do we do to make sure we can overcome this? And I think that's um, the great thing about our country. And I think we've seen other countries also respond really well in a hopeful way. And so that gives me some optimism as well. So I'm taking away from this that a lot of people are fired up around the world at what happens in, in, in the US election next month. And that to me just reinforces how how incredibly consequential the leadership of the United States is, not just to us American citizens, but around the world, people are waiting to see how this election turns out. And I'm really, I feel privileged to be part of this country and be part of that process. Excellent. Wow, yeah, and that's- Once again, that, you get to follow Amy, good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is, uh, I wanna start clapping now. Um, I. I I am also optimistic, but maybe, maybe uh, with a little bit of a different lens, which is, which is that um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in November. You know, I, I felt pretty confident I understood what's going to happen four years ago. It didn't turn out the way that I thought it would, and the consequences are actually probably more damaging than I thought they would be. Um, but uh, so I'm not necessarily. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't bet the farm on November. But what I, what I am banking on is is is, is the resiliency of our systems. And ultimately, the, the ethos of, of what is America, because that, that to me is is more important than any election. And I certainly, you know, I think I think I have a shared a shared view on on a preferred outcome with, with you, Amy, and, and with and with Pat. 
But the more important real referendum is, is whether um, America is, is um, uh, going to view um, its identity as one that is really inclusive, not out of some sort of um, moral adherence to some sort of, of, of uh, idealist code, although I, I would hope that we have that in our best moments, but even just out of enlightened self-interest, that at the end of the day, history has proven over and over again, if you get to a point of exclusion, and it's not a majority, it is a minority that feels so disenfranchised that they have no stake in the future, and they will very deliberately, they will do damage. Um, and, I, and I think in many ways, that's what elements of what we're fighting now and, and all open societies come from. It, it, is, it, is, a, it is a failure um, globally from the globalization movement to recognize that we have to do a better job of making sure that everybody has skin in the game, that everybody has 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 stake, you know, table stakes here. And to the extent that that we are not sensitive to the, enough to that, either because of what people might view as, you know, capitalist piggery or intellectual snobbery or whatever people want to assign on whatever spectrum or or TV channel they're watching. At the end of the day, I have confidence that we will remember that. It may it may it may be here. It may be in four more years, but. At the end of the day, that's what's made us as a country bigger than a country. It's made us an idea for 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 the best of everyone around the world. It's it, this is an ideal that um, where people can come compete um, under rules that everybody understands to get to uh, make a life that's better than the one that that uh, that they came from, and 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 I think we will remember that. I I I hope whoever wins in November that we return to that way of thinking. Um, and I'm confident that we will. I just, I hope it's sooner rather than later, regardless of who's in the White House. And with that, thank you both so much. Thanks extended family, friends, uh, Dr. Dayhoff, everybody, uh, and students for the amazing questions you provided, top, top notch. And uh, hopefully Amy and Chip will come back sometime and visit us again. and maybe even in person next time. Uh, that would be great. Um, have a great night, everybody. And thanks, Chip and Amy again. And I know it's late for you and appreciate uh, your time. Real pleasure, Pat. Night. Amy, always, always great to be with you. You guys rock. Great to see so many friends on the, on the Zoom. Wonderful, guys. Thank you, Pat. Good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to a Pizza and Politics episode of Politox. We'll see you next time.